Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today we're doing something a little unusual. We're talking about something that's a story that's unfolding in real time. And it sort of makes me uncomfortable to to do something like this because the story is uh, has some potentially tragic elements and I don't want to be very tabloid about it. But I actually think it's important for a few reasons. First of all, this is a history podcast. I like to go with documentation and not journalistic stuff. However, this story is so relevant to this podcast because it, invo- it it involves Mormon fundamentalism. Now, a lot of current Mormon fundamentalists who practice polygamy sort of don't want to associate with fundamentalists of this type, but you know, I use the term pretty loosely, but I use it to mean Mormons who are trying to return to the restoration in some ways, to sort of return to what they see as the fundamentals of Mormonism. And there, as you know from this podcast, there are all kinds of ways that that plays out and is illustrated. But this one is making the news because of the story. And we're going to talk about uh, the Chad Daybell case. Chad Daybell is a Mormon man who uh, has made the news, and we're going to get into his story right now, but you can look him up on the news as we're recording this. It's January 9th, 2020. The story is still unfolding, so we don't know that much about it, but I wanted to talk about his story because we're going to also be talking about a few other movements like this that are currently unfolding. I've talked a little bit on this podcast about the Mormon prepper movement. I've done some stuff with the Salt Lake Tribune about it. It's something we need to be paying attention to. There is a current in Mormonism writ large that really, I don't know, feeds this this uh, doomsday, we call it prepper. Prepper means preparation for the last days. So we are a millenarianism, you know, religion. We believe that Jesus is coming soon and we need to prepare for that day. And Chad D- Daybell is a great um, case study and his, his story is so interesting right now. And I think if we if we can sort of set, step back from the seediness of, you know, the the headlines of it and pay attention to what's happening, we can see how these movements play out in real time. And I sometimes do this, but it's pretty rare for me to jump on breaking news. But since I have some information that a lot of people don't have access to, in order to do that, I brought on a really good old friend of mine, one of my co-bloggers back from the FMH, Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast, Blogging Days, uh, Sarah Hansen Forsberg. Can you say hello? Hi. It's so good to talk to you. How how long has it been since you were blogging with FMH? Um, I have not been over there for at least two years, maybe a little bit more. I don't remember now. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, I don't know how long we've known each other, 10 years, more than that? Oh, yeah, probably at least 10. And you have some knowledge about uh, this case because you've sort of interacted with some of these folks. So I was hoping you could kind of tell us like a quick and dirty story of what's going on with Chad Daybell, who he is right now. And then I'll you know start asking you some follow-up questions. But can you give everyone sort of just a 101 on who Chad Daybell is and what's going on with him right now? So Chad, back from my days of kind of very conservative homeschooling kind of stuff was popular for a lot of the groups that we were in because he was um, a publisher of a lot of Mormon books. People really liked him, seemed like a you know great guy. He was popular, started his own publishing company. And I, and I feel like that was getting more into the, you know, really conservative kind of topics instead of just generalized 
you know, basic LDS gospel kind of things, but everybody really liked him and that he's, he's really great. And, you know, had kind of positive feelings and feedback about his books and his self as a person. Um, he had a lot of kids and his wife was also very well liked, um, especially in her community. So he's an LDS guy. He writes fiction and nonfiction and he's published a lot, but they're self published, like you said, by his own publishing company. But, you know, when I first encountered him a couple of years ago, he was writing. I'm not going to associate him with the snuffer movement, but it's a similar idea of like end of days, uh, second comforter type, but more more aligned with the prepper movement, which means like the last days are coming. You have to get yourself prepared. That's why we call it prepper ready for when Jesus returns. And so he has, I'm just going to read some titles of his book. The Great Gathering is one of them. The Keys of the Kingdom, The Renewed Earth. (laughs) He's got things like that. Living on the Edge of Heaven. Have you read any of these books, Sarah? I have not. I have not. I was kind of, by that point, I was kind of just following along because I was like, wow, what is happening with like the whole Julie Rowe movement? And that's kind of how I heard about hers through him and you know, the prophesying started and the, you know, kind of went from there to sort of this downward spiral of like my child had a dream and the, it was autumn in the dream. And so that's when the end of days are going to be and people were selling their houses and converting to gold. And that's when I kind of was like, all right, this is scary and a little too fear-based, but that, that, that whole thing was like, wow, this is not exactly what I thought it was you know, at the beginning. Yeah. So there's this heavy strain in Mormonism to prepare for end of days. We've all got caught up in it. I I still like to be self-sustainable. I like to have a food storage. It's just very much ingrained in my Mormon psyche that we need to have a lot of food storage. Um, I just think it's still a good idea for practical reasons, but some of these people take it to an, a new level. And so he was kind of rising to fame back in the Julie Rowe days. So for people who don't know, Julie Rowe is a woman. We've talked about her on the podcast before, and I think she's unique because she is a woman in a Mormon space, and this hardly ever happens that a woman gets as much traction. She sort of had some dreams and visions, near-death experience. Chad didn't have a near-death experience, right? I'm not sure. I think he would just shared everybody else's. Yeah, so his, his thing, he was... There were a few people, especially uh, in the Julie Rowe movement, the prepper movement, they were starting Facebook groups, rising to prominence. And uh, yeah, he was starting to talk about last days and theology and he has attracted a following, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard a few people talk about his group, um, another voice of warning or a vow. He has these forums you have to pay to get in, which I have not done. So I don't know some of the more private things except that what has been shared outside of the groups. But um, he's prophesying in them and kind of is considered to be a new prophet of this group, I guess. But um, it's also hard to find information because of the paywall and how private people are in there. Yeah. And so this LDS Avow, as far as I can tell, I mean, it's really interesting because these groups aren't like cohesive like the FLDS or something because it's it's sort of this organic movement so most of the people still have active ties to the LDS church they would consider themselves LDS we can talk about J- Chad Daybell's status 
But they're like very super faithful Mormons who really buy into this end of days rhetoric. I mean, we are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so it's built into our theology that the end is coming. You know, the saints always thought the end was coming. So it's not like they're crazy for thinking this. Most Mormons, if you're a good Mormon, faithful Mormon, you believe some iteration of this. But a vow uh, is tied to Julie Rowe. It's tied to Missouri. All these prepper groups in Missouri who are buying bunkers and land and preparing for the last days. They have ties to this. There's uh, sort of a spread out. This touches some fundamentalist communities. So a lot of fundamentalist communities have people that are in these forums. I would say it's people that are, you know, really attracted to, I don't use this term to be offensive, but like magical thinking and visions. Mm. And so what are some of the revelations that he was prophesying? The last ones that I personally read before I have issues with the second coming stuff just because I feel like it's it's such a fear-based thing when in LDS theology, it should be kind of like this grand, awesome thing, but it's scary, you know, darkness and fighting and wars and all this stuff. So I kind of have to stay away from that because it freaks me out a little bit. And so when it started getting really dark like that, you know, like this, the banks are going to collapse and it's going to be a Monday on a holiday and other things like that, just kind of get yourself ready. And that's kind of what it constantly is, is, is this, this push to get ready, which like you said is, I mean, why not? Let's be debt free. Let's have food storage and stuff. But I think it just goes a little bit further than that. And, and it uses a lot of, you know, the LDS terminology, like there's angels that are going to help us and, you know, Satan's out there and it could be our families or our friends. And so we need to use the spirit of discernment to, you know, try to figure out who's against us or who's with us. And so I, it's just a lot of that fear-based, you know, prepping kind of thing. I don't remember specific details because it has been a while since I read those. Can you talk about people that you know that are attracted to his movement? So I don't, I don't know that I know anybody specifically in, you know, in his, who would say that he's, their, you know, leader particularly, but I do know a lot of people who were involved in kind of that prepper movement. And I don't think that they would call themselves, you know, fundamentalist preppers, but they are definitely into, you know, they go to all the little conferences and the workshops and kind of into that early Mormon mysticism a little bit, and definitely believing in their, you know, personal revelation to, find these things and prepare themselves for the end of days and that it's coming. And they, they really like Julie Rowe. They, you know, go to these conferences that she and Chad and, you know, other people like that have spoken at. And I think that they all have these things in common that, you know, spring out from our church, like, like the personal revelation thing, you know, they, they believe that God is telling them these things and they need to follow those things regardless of what else is going on in our world or what our other church leaders might be saying, you know, that these are callings to them and that they have, you know, witnesses of being part of this, I guess it's not really an organization, but maybe, you know, maybe this movement. And, you know, we, we hear these stories about these, you know, dreams or visions or these amazing, huge spiritual experiences. And, I think that people crave those things. They want to be involved in that. They're, you know, seeking these, what they consider, you know, wisdom and more truth and more light. Cause those are, those are the things that we're used to hearing is, you know, you need to seek truth. You need to look for, you know, the things that make you feel the spirit and leaders of these movements or whether they're put themselves into place or whether other people prop them up as leaders. 
they're used to that terminology. They use all those things. They make you, you know, you either use the spirit-based language to, oh no, we have to do this because we need to be saved. We need to be prepared for Christ. Or they use this other messaging that we're used to, like, you know, this is just this higher truth and, and you've been called and you have this, you know, personal witness that you need to do this and that this is happening and you can have these visions and you can, you know, prophesy. And especially for a lot of the people I know, they're women. And, you know, women in the LDS church don't really have access to that kind of power where we can personally heal people or we can, you know, put our hands on somebody and pray for them or wanting to use the spiritual gifts that we have to, you know, not even necessarily that women are wanting to be these leaders, although, you know, we see some of them, like people like Julie Rowe, like you mentioned, you know, it is really strange for a woman to, you know, get up there and be popular and have all of these people following her because, you know, we don't have that in our worship tradition. So a lot of my friends have, you know, start in these smaller things, like we're going to go to a book club and read feelings buried alive, never die. And we're going to talk about stagnation in our spirits and our souls. And and we, we have a lot of um, what, you know, what they call emotional blocks or whatever we're, and we're seeking for more, you know, we want to participate. We want to be heard and we want our spiritual witness to mean something and for other people to understand it. And when women come together, you know, it, it's, they're, they're powerful. And so of course, as these things progress and, you know, to say, I had this dream and this happened and people care about that and people are listening to what you're saying and they're listening to your feelings. And, and that is really important to have your experience, you know, acknowledged. And I think that that can go two ways. You know, one is just that these people are, you know, living their spiritual lives here and they're, and they're really trying to do that in a, in a not exploitive way. You know, they're just, that's what they want to be is their calling and they're, they want to witness and they want to use their spiritual gifts and maybe become powerful on their own through accident or just because other people think that they're amazing. And then there are the people who are purposefully exploiting people. And I think that, you know, we see that there's, Men kind of have a tendency to do that, maybe not on purpose, maybe because they can't leave behind the patriarchal structures of priesthood and being in controller and in control and having that power over people. And and maybe women want to seek that out too. And so I think it's just kind of these little stepping stones, but the whole way you're doing it, you're feeling this spirit, so to speak, because these things feel good, these things feel right, these you feel like you're doing something, you know, for your religious and spiritual self for you and your family and that it's your, your called of God and, you know, trying to lead people towards Christ. And so I see where these stepping stones are. And then I can see where people can say, Oh, you know, you get a little bit of power and then you start telling people what to do and you're not the spirit and where the personal witness should come from. You're making people feel like your opinions are their own spiritual witness. And, you know, that's not what personal revelation is. So I, I see how people go down these paths and, and that some of my friends have gotten in trouble with, you know, wanting to maintain 
their LDS membership and Temple recommends, and they've been called in for, you know, things like priestcraft where they had to go meet with their bishops repeatedly and say, you know, you can't charge money for these phone calls or for these, this energy healing or for these workshops or firesides that you're doing, or, you know, this is contrary to the teachings of the gospel. And, you know, some general authorities have even come out and said, you got to stop these little meetings that you do, these little workshops, these little prayer groups, because they, you know, it can take away traction from their own gospel. So I know that it's, it's there. And, and I, and I think it's scary because you are feeling so good about it the whole time and feel like you're doing so good and that you kind of not worship, but, you know, put, maybe put these, these leaders onto a pedestal and think that because they're doing something of God, that it's got to be right. And then following that leadership is what can, you know, get you into trouble. And maybe you don't know till it's too late or you're already so involved or your husbands and ex-wives are dead or, you know, bizarre things like that. Well, and that's such a, so far, that's such a good point that you just brought up because like, I do think that this is, there's this tension in modern LDS culture and theology, which is we have this doctrine of personal revelation. We're supposed to be having these spiritual experiences. You're supposed to be going to the temple to have these kind of dreams and visions. But when people actually do have them or talk about them, like you're not supposed to talk about them. You're not supposed to interpret them. And so people feel really lonely. They feel spiritually isolated. A lot of people I've talked to said they feel like their spiritual gifts have been restricted because the LDS church has correlated things, has tried so hard to sort of clamp down on this. And I understand their position because you get folks like Chad Daybell who have one or two revelations. People really respond to that, resonate with that. And he starts to get some, I don't know, a following. And this happens over and over and over again. But what you just said is a lot of these folks have been trained to follow LDS authority, priesthood authority. So a a guy like Chad Daybell, who has a little bit of status in his community, he's well-spoken, he's deeply faithful, he knows how to perform all the signaling, you know, Mm -hmm. he, um, he makes a lot of sense to a lot of LDS people. But like you said, they don't know till it's too late. And then they end up getting excommunicated from their own church or getting called into the state president's office. And that, you know, that happens all the time. So let's talk about Chad Daybell, um, his experience with the church. What do you know about his interactions with the LDS church? Um, I don't know a whole lot up until, so he was, I follow the LDS Freedom Forums and they, everybody has pretty much liked him up until kind of recently. And um, some, even some of Julie Rose friends said that, like a year ago, she even cut off contact with him. And I don't know if some of that had to do with what her position in, in the church and um, losing membership and stuff. I don't know if that had something to do with it, but that he has just, you know, that some of the podcasts that he's made have just gone a little bit, you know, not in line with mainstream theology or even a little bit too off for a lot of the people who have followed him. And so I, I know that, um, I know people who know his wife and who had just like loved her and that their kids are amazing and that everybody really thought that they were awesome until kind of recently when people in their family started to get worried that there was like cult-like behavior. And, you know, I don't know how much of it, how, how that kind of goes in line with the LDS church and what he was doing with his membership there or, you know, even going to church. I'm not sure 
where he sat with that. I just know the people around him started to get kind of worried and that there were families who, you know, like somebody left their husband to go, you know, follow him. Um, Just, you know, weird stuff that I think kind of with his new wife, Lori, some of her family even. And so that's who has kind of been speaking out more about it. And which has got to be hard for Chad's family because, you know, as far as I know, his kids are all, you know, great, well-liked, you know, they just lost their mom. It's got to be just this traumatic, weird thing for, you know, this to happen. You know, the one thing that came out is we do see a lot of preppers go into hiding with their children and keep the children alive, you know, because they just need to wait it out till the end of days. It's so close and they're ready. And that was like my only hope for those kids is please let them have just gone into hiding with these kids to, you know, supposedly keep them safe till the end of days. But with so much, so just so much death and so much trauma surrounding this whole situation, it's scary and sad for those kids. Well, and, and either way, it's, it's might be with them. Yeah, either way, it's traumatic. And so, you know, Chad and Lori, if you guys are listening to this, I'm sure you're aware of, unless you've gone completely off the grid, that everyone is worried. The best thing you could do if you are innocent, if you've got nothing to hide, that is to come forward and, you know, put a lot of heartache and worry and anxiety at rest. But it's not looking good right now. So it'll be interesting to see how this story unfolds because by the time we post this, the story will still be unfolding. And I don't like to usually post things like that because there's it's more of a journalistic thing and not a historical thing. So it's kind of tricky to talk about because we don't have all the information right now. Right. But and who knows what's sensationalized or, you know, it's so much of picking apart things over the course of years that have been, you know, posted or, you know, podcasts or something. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's weird. Um, is there anything else you think people should know? We're going to, like I said, we're going to talk about uh, all these other things, all these other guys in the larger context, but is there anything else people should know about this case? Um, nothing I can think of. I think you kind of covered, I mean, everything that we know kind of for now. So, okay. Well, thanks so much, Sarah, for agreeing to come on and talk about this. And so all of that is uh, a long way to introduce my next guest. I want to introduce Nathan Everett. Is it Everett? Uh, it's, we actually pronounce it Averett. Avery? Averett. Uh, Averett. Okay. I want to um, introduce my friend Nathan Averett. Did I do that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Nathan <laughs> is like me. He's, you know, there are a few... I'm trying to figure out how to how to say this. There are a few of us that follow modern movements. We we're Mormons and we have interest in sort of the wacky ways that Mormonism expresses itself. And Nathan, you are one of these people that has been following this movement and you have sort of researched it and know a lot about it, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, I saw your post on Facebook and uh, there was something about it that was just interesting to me and, you know, ended up falling down the rabbit hole like I often do. So before we get into the case, sort of tell me how that's happening, because from what I understand about this particular case, there are like message boards and forums and Facebook groups discussing the case. Is that true? That is true. Yeah. So there's, um, as I've you know started to dig into this, I mean, I saw your, your post on Facebook and, and I started searching there and actually connected it to some of my family members who know the Daybells personally. And so from there, it just became a lot more interesting to me. But uh, so obviously there's, there's groups on Facebook that are discussing this. There's other groups on Reddit. There's groups on, uh, you know, there's the, the web sleuths uh, site that, that they follow a lot of these types of cases. And so, yeah, there's a lot of interest in this one. 
Okay, and you're a Mormon too. Tell us your background. You have uh, like pioneer stock. You're one of those guys. Um, <laughs> tell us uh, where, where you're at. Just tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into Chad's story. Sure. Um, so I'm, I live in Utah. I'm, I live in Lehigh. I'm, I got remarried in the last year, uh, like last July. And, and uh, so we've got, I've got two kids. My wife has two kids. So there's the six of us now. Congratulations. Um, then, what was that? Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then I'm also, I've, you know, career uh, army. I've actually been in the army now for 24 years and currently a, a chief warrant officer. And uh, my background is actually in digital forensics. Um, and I, I wanted to to point out with that that I that I, I didn't apply any of my digi- digital forensic tools or anything like that to the research I did here. Um, this is all just open source stuff. But as far as my my church history goes, um, yeah, my great 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 grandfather served in the Mormon battalion. Uh, so I guess we got a bit of a, a military history there too. Um, he marched with the battalion from Council Bluffs to Santa Fe, and then uh, returned back to Council Bluffs to uh, meet up with his wife. And they they went they traveled to Utah and eventually settled in Springville. Uh, while in Utah, he took a second wife. And as the, the lore goes, um, this, the first wife was unhappy with that, hit him over the head with a frying pan and left him. So, uh, so that's, that's my polygamy background too. I like that. I like the frying pan story. That's amazing. <laughs> I don't know how it might be apocryphal. I, I'm not, I'm not sure, but we'll see. Well, and, and the reason why I asked you to come on and talk about this is not just because you know a lot about this, but like I said, this is something that's so common. I mean, I can't, I, I wish listeners could understand. I wish Mormons in general could understand. And if they actually stop and pay attention to this, they might realize that this is so common. Like I like I always say, there's fundamentalists in every ward. Every ward that you are in has people like this that have, I would say, deeply held beliefs that intersect with Mormonism and sort of amplify mm-hmm. Mormon theology. And if you're a Mormon man, especially, it expresses itself through priesthood and authority and revelation. But this... I would say this neo-fundamentalism, this new fundamentalism that is happening within the LDS movement is, I mean, you know, this is just like a theory of mine, but since the church is so correlated, there's not a lot of outlet for expression. You see movements like, you know, Denver Snuffer and the Remnant Movement and Julie Rowe and the Prepper Movement. And Julie Rowe has a lot of intersections here. Julie Rowe is interesting because she is a woman claiming revelations. And I think that's what's compelling about this sort of strain of fundamentalism because because it appeals to women. They get to use their spiritual gifts and they feel sort of limited at church. And I'm telling you, you guys, it's so common. I once a month, at least once a month, I get a message from someone who's like, I think my dad is going into fundamentalism. My parents belong to this group. And this Daybell case, I think it's so interesting. And and this is why I wanted Nathan here, because people are asking me all kinds of questions. They're coming to me for questions. And I know about the movement. I've just been watching this guy sort of from afar thinking, oh, yeah, he's another prepper guy. But he's actually really connected to a lot of people in my community, like you, Nathan. Like you said, you you find a family connection. You know, when I post about on Facebook, I had family members and neighbors of the families reaching out to me. And uh, I was sort of flippant about the post at first. And, you know, someone called me out on that and said, these are real people and they're, you know, they're struggling with this. And so I had to apologize for that. So I hope that, that we can uh, in that that spirit and that tone. Remember that these are like real life people. They are missing right now. And we're going to talk about that. But it's possible that they could be listening to this podcast. And if they do, I'm sure it's a wild world to maybe be misunderstood and things like that. And I would just say, you know, there's an, a chance to correct the record, but you have to come forward. So 
Okay, with that, Nathan, why don't you start walking us into the main characters of this story? Right. And I really like what you just said there that, you know, I, I did the best research that I could find, but I, I don't personally know any of these these people. And so there's definitely a, a possibility that I've got some details wrong. And I've tried to be very careful about that. I've tried to be very clear about, you know, what is a rumor and what is something that we can verify, but there's there's a lot of both. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, the, the story kind of starts with Chad and Tammy Daybell. Um, so Tammy was, she was originally born in California, Pasadena. She grew up around the beach, around Disneyland. She had cousins and family members out there. So, but they, they, she, her family did relocate to uh, Springville when she was 13. Uh, Chad was born in Provo, I, I believe, in 1968. So, but anyway, going back to Tammy. So she loved to read her whole life. And one of the, the cool stories that I, I found, I think it was in her, her obituary actually, was that when she was younger, she created a lending library for her siblings so that they could uh, check out books from her. And it was complete with library cards and fines when the books were to return late. And so I thought that was kind of a fun story. And and actually, it's a it's a theme, too, that sort of recurs through the their story, the, this love of books and of reading. She was also in the high school band at Springville High School. And as I mentioned earlier, my, my family's from Springville, and that's where we, we have these connections. Chad also attended Springville High. He was a few years older than her, and, and I'm not sure that they actually knew each other at the time, um, but he was on the, the JV baseball team. He described himself as a bit of a church basketball star, saying, quote, if there is such a thing. After high school, he served an LDS mission in New Jersey. So Tammy and Chad did meet each other while they were attending BYU. They married oh, in 1990. Can I, wait, can I interrupt you for a minute? Yeah, sure. So I just want to point out, as you're talking, it's so evident to me that these these guys are just like regular chapel Utah Mormons, right? Like they and that's why their story I think is so fascinating to so many of us right now because fundamentalism, we always think it as of like Warren Jeffs and prairie dresses and they're strange and they're different and isolated. But that's not the case. I mean, this is very much an by all like appearances, they would appear to be a very normal Mormon family. I mean Tammy had a very, I would say, typical Mormon girl upbringing. Oh, definitely. And that's what I've heard from the, the family members that I've spoken to, that this just came as a, as a complete shock. And, and Chad is, is fairly well known, as, as we'll, you know, we'll get to, but, but even with the things that people have known about him, it's still that this, this story is, is very shocking. So, uh, so yeah, but they, they married in Manti. Um, after they got married, Chad continued his schooling at BYU. Tammy supported the family working for the Springfield Parks Department. And, uh, and her, one of her, the things that she did there was she typed up a whole bunch of uh, thousands, actually, of handwritten burial records into a database, um, which, which the family says sparked her interest in family history. I, I found it interesting just because Chad's got a bit of a history with uh, cemeteries himself. Um, and actually, uh, as far as family history goes, throughout her life, Tammy submitted more than 100,000 names for LDS temple work, which I just found astonishing. After, after Chad graduated from BYU, he took a job as a copy editor at the Standard Examiner newspaper in Ogden, Utah, and, uh, and Tammy became a full-time homemaker. She shared her passion for reading with the kids and often took them to the library. Um, and then another personal side here, I guess, I, but I've got a bunch of librarians in my family too. My grandmother was a librarian at the Springfield City Library for many, many years, and my, my uncle is still the librarian there. Um, I've got another uncle who I believe he might still be the, the librarian at the BYU Law School or the Law Library. So I've got a, a bit of a common thread there as well. But anyway, we, so in 1995, the family returned to Springville and Chad began to work as a cemetery sexton. 
he also started writing at this time, which is the beginning of his, his sort of journey into the world of books. In uh, 2001, he started working as the managing editor for a publishing company in Springville called Cedar Fort. And in 2004, Chad and Tammy founded the Spring Creek Book Company together. So Tammy worked as the company's chief financial officer, and she also applied her graphic design skills. Um, she, she was pretty gifted in uh, apparently in computers and in graphic design um, to, the, to designing the, books, the, the company's book covers. Chad's the president of the company, and together they published dozens of books per year, including from American Idol finalist Carmen Rasmussen and uh, University of Utah football star and NFL quarterback Alex Smith. So in that's, 2007, that's so more, sorry, it's just so Mormon. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. In, in 2007, Chad wrote the first book in his, uh, in one of his most popular book series. Uh, the series is called Standing in Holy Places. Overall, he's written over 25 books, including the Times of Turmoil series, which is a sequel to the Standing in Holy Places series. He and Tammy also created the, the Tiny Talks series for primary children, which some people may know. And uh, many of Chad's books deal with near-death experiences or doomsday situations that Latter-day Saints are urged to prepare for. Okay, and so for a minute, let's go into the larger context, because this is something that I think that people that are interested in modern fundamentalist movements and even, you know, LDS faithful, especially with the sort of tension between personal revelation and authority and church hierarchy and authority, it's really expressed a lot. This is a very common way that it comes out. One of them is in home literature. So there's a long history of home literature in Mormonism, and that basically means Latter-day Saints writing and publishing for their own community. And usually they sell at a church, you know, owned bookstore. And the reason why I'm explaining this is because we have a lot of non-Mormon listeners now. And so in our communities, we have a few bookstores, Desert Book, which is the church's official publishing arm. And then there are some like discount bookstores like Siegel Book, Siegel Books and things like that. And then there are self-publishers who like, you know, pass these books around. And basically, it's usually people who have had their own personal experience or have wisdom they want to share, religious wisdom, spiritual wisdom that they want to share with other Mormons. And it appears Chad started doing that, right? Like he felt like he had a really important message he wanted to share, uh, some wisdom some of his testimony, and it sort of intersected with a near-death experience, Revelation, which is what Julie Rowe had. She was a woman who led a, a large movement and was excommunicated from the LDS Church. She was having a near-death experience and all these revelations, and then they wrote about it, and a lot of people— a lot of uh, faithful Latter-day Saints really resonate with this because it's not exactly out of line with church doctrine. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the whole church was founded with a book, and the uh, a, a major— point of, of church doctrine is the right to personal res- revelation. So yeah, definitely. I think that that makes a lot of sense. So tell us about his books. How, what, are, what do his books say? What, what do they tell us? What is he writing about? What's he interested in? Right. Um, so, so like I said, it, they, a lot of them deal with the near-death experiences. And uh, we'll, I'll talk a little bit more about Julie Rowe uh, in just a minute as well. Um, near-death, near-death experiences or doomsday situations. Um, you know, there's the the, the well-known verse from the, the LDS scripture, the Doctrine and Covenants, which says, if you are prepared, you shall not fear. So there's a lot of that sort of preparedness um, going on in his books as well. I've got an excerpt actually from the second, it's, well, it's actually the description for the second book in his Standing in Holy Places series. So this one says, quote, six months have passed since the LDS prophet's memorable visit to Manti, and the United States has suffered through a harsh winter. Meanwhile, the coalition forces have methodically taken control of the nation, except for the Rocky Mountains, where the ice and snow have kept the saints hidden away from the world. So that's a, a taste of, you know, the, the type of, of fiction, I guess, that he's writing. And of course, not all of his books were fiction either. 
Um, some of them were, were more like, you know, doctrinally oriented. So, so his, his books are like fiction of LDS experiences, but sort of ramped up, right? With like peppered with extra spirituality, extra visions, extra heavenly visitations. Right. I mean, I think a lot of, I think a lot of uh, Mormons are really, you know, uh, very enthusiastic about their religion and really want to explore some of these concepts that, that maybe they don't get to, to explore in such detail, you know, in just a normal do- gospel doctrine class. Okay. And people, but people responded, right? He's got a yeah, large following Yeah, definitely. Of so the, yeah, so the, the first few years, they really did really well. In 2008, as as many of us remember, they, the USA entered a recession and and uh, the book sales slowed for the company. And, and the Daybill said they had to put the put Spring Creek into hibernation. So they went back to work. And in 2009, Ch- Chad returned to cemeteries for work. He w- worked for the city of Spanish Fork, which is nearby to Springville. And Tammy was hired as the computer te- sorry the computer teacher at Art City Elementary School in Springville. Now, d- do you have any uh, idea of how his books were received by the church, by the institution itself, at the time when he first started publishing? So, um, actually, I don't. I, I don't know. I haven't dug into that part of it. Um, but I, I do know that they were sold in places like Siegel Book, which, as I understand, is a church-owned bookstore. Um, I'm not certain about that, but... Well, Siegel, so, I mean, Siegel Book has, I mean, there's they, they sell a lot of church bookstores, but I don't know that it's particularly owned by it. But for all intents and purposes, for non-Mormons out there, you have to understand that if it's sold at Siegel Book, it's safe, which means you can buy it and read it and take it almost as scripture. Right. Yeah, I think that that's true. That, that makes sense. Okay, um, so, and so, so he's in the sorry. cemetery. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then... the. The, the recession started to, you know, improve. The, the economy was improving. Sales of Chad's books started to pick up, and and he started to write new books. And the, but the revenue wasn't quite enough to leave the cemetery at that time, but it gave him hope that the company would uh, could bounce back. So in 2014, Chad was still working as a cemetery sexton in, in Spanish Fork, and Tammy had taken a secretarial position at Springville High School. Chad saw a post from a woman named Julie Rowe, which we talked about a bit already, on a preparedness website, asking for a referral to someone who could publish her near-death experience story. Um, and so the, the way that I've seen her described just to add a little bit more context to her is that she's, you know, an author, um, a a visionary an energy worker and a leader in the Mormon prepper movement. And I just want to say something about the prepper movement. So I've been following it for a while. I had encountered Daybell a few times. Uh, he had sort of, (laughs) it's kind of silly to, to say, but in all of our Mormon spaces, we all have like Facebook groups and communities in our little subgroups. And there are rising stars in each community. And Daybell was one of them. He was sort of a celebrity in the prepper movement. Right. And that's what I've been seeing as well. And and to be honest, I, I didn't even know him uh, prior to this. I think I may have had some awareness of some of his books, but but when I saw your post is really when I had the first awareness of him. But And as I've been researching this, that's that definitely seems to be true. Um, so, so, so Chad saw her, saw Julie posting on this preparedness website and, um, and she was asking, you know, for someone who could publish her near death experience story. And Chad's like, well, you know, I know somebody. So they started talking and, um, and then her book, A Greater Tomorrow was published in mid-May of 2014. And the families actually became really close friends that Julie visited the Daybells in their, in their home dozens of times. Um, that same year, Chad felt inspired to move the family to Rexburg, Idaho. And I kind of felt like it'd be useful to get a sense for what kind of town Rexburg is, because I'm a lifelong Mormon, but I've never actually been there. I've heard a lot about it, but, you know, I decided to do a little digging there and 
found out that, first of all, it's really small. It's about 29,000 in population. Um, and it's ethnically homogenous. It's about 94% white. It's also very politically conservative. It's been called the reddest, reddest place in America, which came as a surprise to me. I thought Provo was the reddest place in America. Rexburg is also home to BYU-Idaho, as many Mormons will know, and an LDS temple that was built in 2008. And it's about an hour and a half southwest uh, of Yellowstone National Park, Wyoming. So it's a very beautiful part of the country, but also quite isolated. Um, in, so in 2015, the Daybells moved from Springville to Salem, Idaho, which is about six miles northeast of Rexburg. And Chad continued to write and publish books. Tammy worked as a school librarian in, Mex in Rexburg and nearby Sugar City. And about a mile from, uh, sorry, that was, a, um, that's about a mile from Salem. And uh, both those cities are actually really small. And Chad remarked actually on a blog post on his, on his website that there are fewer than 14,000 people in the whole county. Uh, th throughout their whole lives, both Chad and Tammy have served in numerous positions in the LDS church. So going back to what you were talking about, Lindsay, with the fact that, you know, these, they're very, very much, they fit that uh, mold of, of the common, you know, no, normal Mormon. Uh, so Tammy served as the state girls camp director and young women's president. She served in relief societies and primary presidencies. Chad was a counselor in a bishopric for six years and he was secretary of a high priest group. Chad and Tammy were also Sunday school teachers. And that's actually how one of my cousins knew them. I, actually, as a personal side, like I said, my family's from Springville and I have aunts, uncles and cousins who went to church in, with the Daybills and knew them well. And they remember them fondly. One of my cousins actually even told me that, that Chad told him that he based a character on him in his book, The Great Gathering. Um, the character is a Mormon apostle who returns to his old mission in Guatemala to help the saints move to Missouri. Um, and uh, Guatemala is actually where my cousin served his mission. So, so there's, uh, there's all these connections that I've got to this thing um, through, my, through my extended family. Wow, that's crazy. But, such uh, a small accounts, Mormon world, <laughs> such a small little Mormon world. <laughs> yeah, it really is interesting. And, and really by all accounts, I've, I've read... You know, I've talked with family members and I've, I've read other things from other people online. And, and by all accounts, the Daybell family was, was, was loved and loving of others. Um, and that's, that's why what follows is, is so shocking and hard for anyone who knew them to understand. So in 2017, Chad wrote Living on the Edge of Heaven, which is his autobiography in which he describes his two near-death experiences in which he interacted with relatives on the other side of the veil. Um, he believes... One of his near-death experiences caused the veil that separates mortal life from the spirit world to stay partially open. And he, quote, often feels as if he has a foot in both worlds. Yeah. And let me, let me just say something again for the non-Mormon listeners. I remember uh, Dr. Christina Rossetti, who we've had on the podcast a bunch. Uh, she studies fundamentalism with me. She's a Catholic, never Mormon. And she, you know, when I first met her, she was like, you know, I'm writing my dissertation on Mormons that talked to the dead. And I was like, oh yeah, no, that's not a thing. Like, I mean, I'm sure there's some wackos that talk to the dead and she, but that's not like a, it's not in our doctrine. And she goes through the veil. She used that phrase. And I was like, oh yeah, no, no, no. We do that all the time. And uh, so what that means is we believe that there's like a veil, like, like a curtain almost. And in our temples, we use a curtain to represent the veil that separates life and death and we're sort of intertwined. And when you are more spiritual, sometimes the veil can be lifted and you can see things beyond this world. Is that an accurate way to describe that? Yeah, I think that that sounds accurate to me. So that's so, the veil we're talking about. That's the veil, right. And he's got, um, there's a, a series of videos on his website that are called Glimpses Through the Veil. It's a 10-part video series, but it's uh, available to subscribers only. So um, while they're living in Idaho, Chad and Tammy continued their relationship, their, their friendship with Julie Rowe, who for several years visited them about once a month. 
possibly from as far away as Kansas. I, I don't know for sure. That's what her website says. She lives there. Julie says that she and Chad would talk about a vision they both had years ago in which angels told them that Tammy was going to die. And Julie said he was emotionally distraught. He was crying and he said that his angels had told him that he was going to lose Tammy. So Chad was also a, a popular speaker for a preparedness organization called Preparing a People, which claims to be a media publishing organization. The group publishes videos, podcasts, and lectures at conferences that can be attended. The group claims to not be a religious movement or a cult, which is what some people have called it, or even affiliated with any religion. But the uh, preparedness ethos draws heavily from LDS doctrine. And, and I followed this group, uh, this movement for a while, and it's 100%. It's very LDS, but a little extra. That's what I keep calling it. It's like, <laughs> it's LDS, but extra. Yeah, that, that sounds right. I mean, like even the name is, is from the idea that, that we have to prepare people for the millennium when Christ is going to come again. Exactly. Um, That's the, the preparation. When we're talking about preppers and preparation, it's preparing for the last days. You're preparing for when Jesus comes. Uh, some would call it the rapture. We don't exactly explain it like that, but that's what these people are preparing the people for. And they believe that through their visions and dreams, they've had special insights. Um, the group, when I was around on social media, I was was part of a, a few secret mailing lists too. They were really big on people would share dreams. And, and at one point it got a little wild. I got worried about it because they were, someone had had a dream and I can't remember the person, but some, someone with clout like Daybell had a dream that the world was going to end at a certain time. And so people were cashing in their, you know, their, their stocks and their retirement and things like that. Oh yeah. I mean, and the church talks a lot about, you know, being prepared for like a natural disaster. Um, like I know I had, there was one uh, ward I was in years ago and our bishop actually canceled church like midway through the sacrament meeting and told us all to go home. And, and we went through like a preparedness exercise where we were unable to use anything that was electric, um, anything that required any gas lines or anything like that. And, and so, and then later that day, we all came back to the chapel and, and talked about our experience. So it's, it's a big thing, but like oh, wow. you said, um, some of people, it's a little extra. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so they're part of this group. Sorry to, for the sign note, keep going. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so a, like a representative of the group says it's just LDS people that go to conferences, but my own take is that it's a bit more accurate to call the movement an extremist group than a cult. A lot of people are calling it a cult, but I think it's that's not quite accurate, but I don't know. So, uh, But one thing I have heard is that Chad and Julie are said to be at the very center or the inner circle, if you will, of the preparing a people movement. So... On October 19th, this is really where, where the story kicks into gear, uh, October 19th, 2019, so this is just, what, like three months ago, Tammy was found deceased in her Salem home. Tammy's father, Ron Douglas, said he saw Tammy about two weeks before her death in good good health and good spirits. He said that Chad called him on October 19th, brokenhearted and sobbing, and said that Tammy had, been gone, had gone to bed in a coughing fit and never woke up. They had been married for almost 30 years, and Tammy was only 49 years old. So this obviously came as a big surprise to people. So three days later, Tammy's a big surprise, funeral. but to Julie Rowe, who claims that she heard about this. When when did when was she saying that Daybell was saying that that Tammy right. was going to die? Yeah, so they they've been talking about that for years. Actually, I, I don't have exact dates on that, but but from what I recall, it goes back several years. So both both Julie and Chad had had this vision, the shared vision that Tammy was going to die, and and Chad was very distraught over it. And then and then on October nineteenth, it happened. So, uh, and three days later, Tammy's funeral and burial were held in Springville, Utah. Um, all the family, all the Daybell family attended with the exception of their youngest son, who's currently serving an LDS mission in South Africa. And uh, on that note, the, the Daybells, they have five adult children, including that son. 
It was in South Africa. They have three sons and two daughters, as well as two sons-in-law and one daughter-in-law, if I've got it all straight. Um, and they also have two grandsons with another on the way. So it's a, it's a big family and, and uh, you know, an, an older family, I guess I would say at this point, as they're, they're starting to welcome grandchildren. So uh, within about two weeks of Tammy's death, and again, she, they've been married for 30 years, but within about two weeks of her death, Chad remarried a woman named Lori Vallow in Rexburg, Idaho. And, and two, was, two months, like, so this is something that people are freaking out about, but I have to say it's, it's fast, no doubt. And I'm not disputing that, but I will say in Mormonism, it's not completely unusual. I mean, two months mm-hmm. is really, really fast, but usually two weeks, sorry, two weeks, you said in two weeks. Yes. Oh, I take all that back. That's, that's too fast, <laughs> but it is it's, for some reason I thought it was two months, but, uh, yeah, holy yeah, cow, I mean, so that is weeks is a bit fast. Do you, um, did you see any of his doctrine that you had read in his books, anything about plural ceilings or oh, polygamy, any, any of that? You know, I, I don't, I, I haven't really heard anything about that. And so, and I know that there's a lot of people that from these particular groups that, that don't really like to have that, that they don't really like to talk about any connection to polygamy. Um, but I also know there's some that do so, but I, I'm not aware of anything like that. And also um, it's, it, I feel like it makes so that's one thing a lot of people have alleged, but I think where it's the argument sort of runs out is be, is where she's dead. You know, like if if he can take a second wife, then why didn't he just like why didn't? Uh, so it's just speculation, but uh, I, I don't know of any connections to polygamy. Okay, cool. Yeah, if anyone out there has any insight, I'm always like watching for that because I I've said it on the podcast before, like Mormons, I don't care if they believe it or not, they have to contend with this doctrine and these modern fundamentalist movements like the remnant movement, which we just had, you know, delightful people on from from uh, earlier on an earlier episode, they have contended with it by denying it or rejecting it. And so I'm just always curious as to how that plays out in these beliefs. Right. Yeah, so Lori, um so she was a podcaster actually for preparing a people from what I understand. And several of her podcasts in the past year had included Chad, but, but they've actually been pulled from their website now. And the, the, uh, the organization actually posted a, a statement to their website, distancing them themselves from both Chad and Lori. Um, one of Lori's extended family members said that she and Chad may have known each other for the last seven years. So, so their relationship may go back that long. Um, and Lori's former mother-in-law said that Lori's personality changed dramatically since she joined quote the cult. And she said that quote, in the last two years, she's completely changed into a monster. I'm making an understatement end quote. Lori, Lori reportedly went missing to a religious compound in January of last year, 2019. So it's a lot harder for me to piece together Lori's history. Uh, Um, thankfully, you know, uh, Chad and and Tammy have, s- have great records because he's a prolific author and and uh, her obituary was beautiful with a lot of detail. But uh, for Lori, it's a lot more difficult. But it seems like sometime in sometime in mid to late 2019, Lori moved to Rexburg from Arizona, and she brought along with her two of her children: uh, her 17 year old daughter, who's named Tylee Ryan, and her seven year old son named. Joshua or JJ Vallow. And this is where we start to get into a lot of names. <laughs> so uh, we'll try to keep that all straight. But, but JJ was the adopted son of Lori and her previous husband, Charles Vallow. And he is said to have spe- special needs. Tylee was Lori's daughter from another marriage to Joseph Ryan. Lori had become estranged in 2019 from Charles in Arizona. In, uh, on July 11th, 2019, Charles uh, came to her home in Chandler, Arizona to pick up his son, JJ. Charles and Lori became engaged in an argument, and according to police, Lori's brother, Alex Cox, intervened, and a physical fight ensued. 
Charles hit Alex with a baseball bat and Alex fatally shot Charles in self-defense. Alex performed CPR on Charles until emergency crews arrived. Both Lori and Alex were taken in for questioning, but both were released and no charges were filed. The only other witnesses to this event were the Valo's two kids, JJ and Tylee. Wow. So then, uh, and, so and yeah, that, did anyone know what the nature of the argument was about? Uh, so we, we know that he, well, from what I've heard, he was, uh, Charles was coming over to pick up JJ. So just as part of that custody, they'd been, se- they'd been separated, I think since like late 2018. Um, so it would have been about seven months or something like that. I mean, some in, in that range of time where they, where the two had been separated. And so it was over custody and I, and I don't know for sure what the argument was about. They're, they haven't even seen any speculation about that, but um, there are some court documents, which I'll, I'll get into a bit later, which may shed some light on that. So, uh, so, okay. So is there any other speculation as to why he married her so quickly? So as to why Chad married her so quickly, uh, it, it's the, the speculation that I've heard is, is kind of the, the typical speculation that you hear about, about fast Mormon marriages that, that they, uh, didn't have any other way to, you know, to, to, uh, have a sexual relationship. So, and, and in fact, it was, it's been, it was alleged by Charles that, that Lori had actually been cheating on him with Chad for some time before then. So, okay, so yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, Is let that, me just explain that to people too. So um, Mormons, uh, faithful Mormons do not believe that you can have sex unless you're married without it being sort of approved by God. And it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, I, I get to hear everyone's secrets. I know even the most conservative fundamentalists, I'm talking, yes, the Warren Jeffs group, like I've heard all of the ways that people, you know, find ways to, to skirt that rule. But <laughs> It makes sense to me that that would be the reason, but two weeks is so like almost socially awkwardly quickly. Oh yeah. Did they get a lot of pushback about that? Uh, So, and from what I've seen, I don't even know if anybody attended that wedding. There's, there's so little information about it. I I don't know if any family members were there for it on on either side. Um, So, and I don't know where it was, where it was held or or what, you know, there's so little information. I don't even have an exact date on that wedding. Gotcha. Thanks. Yeah. So, uh, so after Lori moved to Rexburg, JJ was enrolled at Kennedy Elementary School, um, but the school hasn't seen JJ since September 2019. And Tylee wasn't enrolled in school. It's believed that she had completed homeschooling, but she also hasn't been seen or heard from since September 2019. So when Chad and Tammy were married in November, these two children had been missing for two months. And maybe that's where you came up with the two months thing. Um, the couple did not, uh, the couple also did not report the children missing to law enforcement. On November 26th, Rexburg police were contacted by out-of-state members, uh, family members, requesting a welfare check on JJ and Tylee. And Rexburg police visit a townhome believed to be the residence of Chad and Lori, but the resident, but the, sorry, the children were not there. The, uh, the police say that ch- the parents lied about their whereabouts. The next day, Arizona authorities contacted Rexburg police about a cell phone ping at the townhouse. The call was connected to both the missing children case as well as Arizona death investigations. Following the request, Rexburg police executed a search warrant on the home, but found that Chad and Lori had abruptly left the house and the city. Police do not believe the children were with them when they left. And the, the couple stopped cooperating with law enforcement in late December and were named persons of interest in the case. An attorney for the couple issued a statement on their behalf. Chad Daybell was a loving husband and has the support of his children in this matter. Lori Daybell is a devoted mother and resents assertions to the contrary. We look forward to addressing the allegations once they have moved beyond speculation and rumor. Um, also defending them is uh, Chad's friend, Julie Rowe. 
who posted a, a video on her website. And she said, my angels tell me that Chad Daybell is being falsely accused of the sus- sus- suspicious death of his wife. And Nathan, I'm going to, I'm going to play a clip of this too. Okay. That'd be great. So, uh, so she, Julie Rose said, my angels tell me that Chad Daybell is being falsely accused of the suspicious death of his wife. I have talked to Tammy's spirit. And then uh, Julie says that she's never met Lori, but she did have the following to say of the missing children. She said, I do know the kids are safe. I can see them. I can see their energy and that they're in a bright house. I can see they're in the living room where they are. I can see their comfortable bed at night. Okay. So I want to play a clip of that. Um, this is Julie Rose. She's talking. What what podcast is this? Uh, so it's actually, I think it's on her, her website. It's a video. Okay. So yeah. So let's just give a clip of Julie Rowe and sort of how Revelation fits into this. A news program today where they said, anybody that has information about this story, please contact 911 or the media. Well, I contacted Kansas Star on Tuesday and reported what I know about Chad Daybell. They haven't run a thing. I contacted the East Idaho News. They sent me a, a text back or an email back and they said, what do you have to share, Julie? To which I responded, I'll get back to you because it was Christmas and I knew I was doing this podcast. So I, I had my team, my communications team, contact several media and i'm planning on sending this podcast to all those media including everyone who had reported on this story up until tuesday the 24th none of them got back to me none of them if they really care about this case and finding the truth why don't you go if you've got the fbi and the media involved with police why aren't you following every single lead you have this is somebody who claims she knows something about Chad Babel, has a working relationship on a friend level, and knows the family. Why are you not interviewing that, interviewing that side? I'd like to know, because right now, all the reporting is extended family of Lori Vallow. Julie, I can't help but notice a little bit of an accusation in that towards the media. So what is, uh, you what's better believe be- it. What's behind this accusation? What are you seeing there? I'll tell you. Well, part of it's my own vendetta. And I'm not going to be, I'll be open and honest about that because I watched how they slaughtered me in the news. I watched how the LDS church didn't get my back and I watched how they slaughtered me in the news. I am now an excommunicated member of the church in part because of what the media did to me in messing up my reputation and making false accusations. Mm-hmm. And if to this day, if you Google Julie Rowe and go to my website, julierowprepare.com or The Greatest Tomorrow Relief, there are people and the first thing that comes up of Wikipedia is Julie Rowe is an excommunicated member of the church. I can tell you this much. I'm not anti-Mormon, though. Right. Now, I know that preparing a people conference, which is being claimed to be a cult, that's a lie. I know those people. I don't agree with the with the people that started that. And they turned their backs on me a while ago. They're kind of iffy on me. So they may not consider it a compliment that I'm telling people my opinion on them. But I do know they're not a cult. I've met several hundred of those people. They're not the same people that go. It's a conference where you can listen to authors and speakers and see artwork and all kinds of stuff. It's people that believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just Mormons. And it's people that want to be like bringing in a better earth. They're preparing and they believe that Christ is coming back to the earth. And I stand as a witness to this, that he is. Uh I've seen it and he will come in my lifetime. I don't know when, but he will come. So they have dozens of speakers chad spoke at a lot of their conferences but not all of them he parted ways with them a while ago i don't know exactly when i don't remember and um he did do a lot of videos and and they were all about chad daybell for a long time until suddenly some news comes out and now they're turning their backs that's my view 
That makes a lot. And I, I want to know where all of Chad's friends are. Either nobody's coming forward because they're scared to death or they're questioning his integrity. And so I consider that cowardly. Or they're being shut down and they're not having a voice because the media and the police are corrupt. And I don't know what it is. I believe there are plenty of good people that have called the police department with leads. Maybe even a character witness. And they're not being presented. In all these, I'm angry. Can you tell I'm angry? <laughs> Just a bit. In all these stories that are going out, I think one of the bigger concerns is that the children are okay. The two children. Can you see, Do you see anything, hear anything, feel anything with regard to those two children? I deal in human trafficking, soul trafficking every day. This is part of my life. In what way? Can you explain At, how? On a spiritual level, I spirit travel. I go over this. I go over all of this, this whole galaxy, and there's soul trafficking going on, and there's human trafficking on this planet. I have emergency disaster relief safe houses. I am not hiding Chad or his kids. I have not talked. I've never met Lori. I've never met her kids, and I have not talked to Chad. The last time I talked to Chad was three weeks before Tammy died. She was going to be home. The kids were going to be home for potato harvest. And he said he would contact me after potato harvest. He sent me a text the Tuesday before Tammy died. I replied it was on a work trip and I gave him my schedule to let him know that I would be in Utah. He was living in Idaho. This, then I was going to go to San Diego to teach a class. Tammy died. He says the report says at about he called in around six in the morning. The the police or whoever, I don't know because my sources are secondhand, that apparently Tammy died in her sleep at two in the morning. Chad woke up and found her on the floor. He called 911 and he was calm. This is what I'm hearing. Now, anybody that knows Chad knows he's calm and anybody that knows Chad knows he's visionary and he saw it coming. I talked to his daughter that day. I was in San Diego and I was teaching an energy class, a group energy class. My head of security broke the news to me a little bit after noon, San Diego time, on that Saturday. I called immediately to Chad's oldest daughter, Emma Daybell, and we talked for at least 40 minutes. I'm not going to go into that conversation, other than to say that it was a shock to her and that she told me it was a shock to her dad that he had found her, and I believe that. Emma was authentic. I scanned Chad's energy. His heart was broken. He couldn't believe that it had happened like that. He and I talked over three years ago, two and a half, three years ago. We had both seen her in a car accident. We thought maybe she was going to go a year ago in a car accident because it, it seemed so constant that we both kept seeing this vision. About a year ago, I got a message from the other side that the plan had changed for Tammy, that they had extended her time on Earth. I don't even know what that means, Eric. I was just hearing that. I ran it by a chat and he said, I've been given the same message. I'm grateful I have more time. He told me, I asked him three weeks before she died, Chad, are you still seeing Tammy dying? And he said, yes, but I don't know how. And I don't remember what else he said about it other than I said, I had been asking too. And then my angel said, yes, she's gonna go. She's almost graduated from mortality. And I had a vision of literally this group of family members on her side of the veil getting ready to receive her and they were all in white and it looked like they were making preparations for her. Mm -hmm. So I knew it was soon and I didn't tell Chad that because just because I see it doesn't mean I say it and especially related to like 
babies being born or somebody dying or anything to do with somebody's life plan and agency, I keep my mouth shut unless I am specifically told you need to say this as a witness or preparation for you or somebody else. I did not say to Chad, yeah, I see that too. He has no idea what I have and haven't seen. All right. So, so, um, but, but, but here's my thing with the Daybell story, Eric, is I have my gifts. People can choose to believe them or not. I can only tell you what I know right now based on a credible witness of Chad's character. I don't know Lori, but when I look at her energy, I can tell you what I see. What I see is a woman and what I hear is a woman who was severely abused in a marriage by an abusive husband and she escaped a really bad marriage. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to blame her one bit for that. I'm going to congratulate her. Whether or not I agree with her marrying Chad Dable a few weeks after his wife died, I'm not going to judge that either. I want to because I think that sounds suspicious to get married that quickly and I almost feel like it sounds disrespectful to his wife. But I'm not going to judge that. But I know that's what people are thinking, which is why I'm putting that energy out there, okay? I don't judge Lori. I don't judge Chad. Because I'm not in their bodies. I don't have all the gifts they have. I have my own gifts. I'm going on those. Chad probably won't even like that I'm speaking out because I don't exactly make him look good. He was trying to distance himself last year because my state president, my leaders in, in our LDS faith, excommunicated me on false charges and they were going after him and you Eric mm -hmm. and they're still going now there's a rumor going on that Chad's been ex I have no idea I haven't talked to Chad I can tell you three weeks before his wife died my understanding is she, he he was not exed and so that's a lie right it's being misreported if he's been exed it has happened since he married Lori after Tammy died and he made no mention to me of any church courts. In fact, he still had a calling in the church. At that point, I told him, Chad, why haven't you returned my calls? Because quite frankly, this year, since 2019, we texted in January and February. He stood me up for meetings in January and February, and I was angry at him. And in March, when I got notice, notification that they were threatening to excommunicate me, we had a conversation and I said, it's time for us to stop publishing, stop publishing my books. I was going on what my angels told me to do. I was trying to protect him. I didn't want to get him roped up into false charges. We quit publishing the books, although they're still available on Amazon because the Brigham Distributing distributes them. And so there's still books out there, but we have not printed any new books. I get exed in April. I don't talk to Chad. I try calling Chad. I tried texting Chad. He didn't respond to me, which was very unlike Chad. I was going strictly on what my angels told me. They would tell me when to text him or when to email him. And they would tell me, he's upset. He is not going to reply. But it's part of a bigger plan. Give him his space. Be loving. Be kind. Don't judge. That's where I was all year. Until I talked to him for an hour and a half, three weeks before his wife died. And we kind of made amends. Um, but we still had an un unresolved energy, if you will. So so there's a whole story on my relationship with Chad in the last year that goes into the backdrop of where I am and where he is. I don't know exactly where he is out of his own mouth. I haven't talked to him. I don't know what's gone on in his personal life with Lori in the last year. I have no idea. 
But I do know that my angels tell me that Chad Dable is being falsely accused of, of a suspicious death of his wife. I do know that if there's foul play involved, which I don't believe there is, it was not Chad. I do know that Tammy got held up by gunpoint a week to a week and a half before she died by a man in black. And I know Chad had nothing to do with it because Chad was upset and so and so was her son and so was her daughter and the whole family got together to try to deal with it. I do not know who that man on block is. I have my ideas, I have my suspicions, and it's somebody that has a personal vendetta against Chad Dable and his mission what he's doing. Mm. He's being framed. All right, so on December 11th, 2019, Tammy's body was exhumed by the Utah Office of the Medical Examiner to conduct an autopsy. The results have not yet been released. Rexburg Police Department originally, originally stated that Tammy's death was due to natural causes. The autopsy was conducted without the knowledge of family members. And I was told by, um, by people connected to this that the, the family chose not to do an autopsy because of the time considerations and the fact that it wouldn't change anything, as in it wouldn't bring Tammy back. And I did, I did hear, too, from family members that it was extremely traumatic, you know, having her exhumed again. That's a hard thing on a family. Yeah, definitely. So, and, and now there's a number of ongoing investigations. The Fremont County Sheriff's Office in Idaho is investigating Tammy's death. The Rexburg police are investigating the missing children. And on December 20th, they said that they believe Tammy's death was due to the disappearance of JJ and Tylee. Um, the Rexburg police did not say how. It's kind of an odd statement, I think. Uh, so to further complicate things, the day after Tammy's body was exhumed, Lori's brother, Alex, who killed Lori's estranged, estranged husband, Charles, in July, was reported dead at the age of 51. And there were allegedly indications of poisoning, but the police have not released details of, of his death. So now we have Chad and Lori, whose previous spouses are both dead. Alex, Lori's brother, is also dead. And JJ and Tylee have been, mis- been, have been missing since September. But wait, there's more. In 2008, Lori's niece, Melanie, married a man named Brandy, sorry, Brandon Boudreau. And a little background on Melanie. So her mother is Lori's sister, and uh, her mother's name was Stacy Lynn Cope. She died in 1998, and it's believed that Alex was the only one with her at that time. It's also believed that the relationship between Melanie and Lori was very close, almost like a mother and daughter relationship. Brandon says that Lori and Melanie joined Chad's, quote, cult together. He described it as, quote, an infatuation with the end of the world and an infatuation with power and said they're using it to try to make money off of other people's beliefs. Brandon says that in is there a suggestion that is is there an implication that uh, Chad is a con artist, that he doesn't believe it himself and that he's just making money? Or does she believe that he's sincerely I mean, infatuation, that's the word she is. Does that mean that he's a believer himself? Uh, Yeah. So I I think um, and I'm just I'm just trying to to get a sense for what Brandon is saying here, but I think that Brandon probably feels that that both Chad and Lori are uh, genuine in their beliefs and their um, interest in the end of the world and these things. Um, but I think he also seems to think that they're also a bit opportunistic, making money off of other people's beliefs. And I've heard that. Gotcha. I, I, I said I said work. she. It's he. Yeah. Sorry about that, Brandon. Right. Yeah. And I, so I guess that there's like. There's websites and different paywalls to get through. And uh, I mean, like we, we said earlier, there's a series of videos on Chad's website that are available to subscribers only. Okay. So, and, and and one thing I really appreciate about how you're telling a story, Nathan, is you're not speculating. You're just laying out the facts as we know them. So I appreciate that. 
Yeah, well, and just trying to, you know, trying to do that, but also trying, I'm trying to be clear when I, when it's a rumor, when it's believed, you know, so, um, so there's, a, with, especially in the case of Lori, there's a lot that, that we really don't know and trying to piece together these, these things. Um, but yeah, so in 2019, Brandon says that, that Melanie, uh, they were estranged at the time, attempted to have him killed when shots were fired at him at his house. And again, this was about a month after Alex Cox killed Lori's estranged husband, Charles, in, in uh, Arizona. So one thing that, that I do find it unusual about the story is the intersection of so much violence and not just domestic violence. Domestic violence is very common in all Mormon groups, as it is everywhere. But uh, this this violent stuff, do you, ha- do you have any sense for why things are always escal- escalating to guns and weapons and... Is there a strain of that in any of their belief system? Right. Uh, you know, and I, I don't know. It's it, that's that's something that's really interesting to me too. And I, and I don't know the the background with Lori and you know her <clears throat> previous relationships. Um, as far as you know, like are they lifelong members of the church or or not? And so it's it's hard for me to say. I, I don't I don't know. But but there's especially as it as it concerns Alex Cox now. Um, you know, because Brandon is is saying here that he thinks, well, actually, maybe it's not Brandon that's saying it. Brandon is not saying much more about this because there's an ongoing investigation. But, but there, but there's a video surveillance that allegedly implicates um, Alex as being the shooter in this particular case too. And then once again, Alex was present, uh, the only one present at the death of his sister, um, Melanie's mother. So, uh, so there, there's, there's weird uh, connections here that, you know, I, I just can't fully explain. So, but, uh, so Brandon was, was shot at and then in August, and then uh, he went into hiding with his kids after that. He's been in hiding since, although he did, he did speak with Utah's Fox 13 news in December and Melanie and Brandon are also divorced at this time. So uh, to, to quickly recap what we know about the year 2019 for these families is that in July, Alex Cox shot and killed Charles Fallow and sometime thereafter, Lori moved to Rexburg with, J- with JJ and Tylee. In August, Brandon Boudreaux r- reported an attempt on his life, possibly by Alex, in late September. Well, late September is the last time anyone has seen or heard from T- JJ or Tylee. In October, Tammy Daybell passed away at the age of 49. And a couple weeks later, in November, Tammy and Lori married in Rexburg. Later that month, authorities became aware of the missing children. Shortly thereafter, Chad and Lori disappeared from their Rexburg home. In December, Tammy's body was exhumed for an autopsy and Alex passed away the very next day at the age of 51. In late December, Chad and Lori stopped cooperating with authorities and were officially named persons of interest in the investigation over Lori's missing children. So that's that's a recap for where we're at right now. But now I think it's useful to talk about Lori's past. So, uh, and again, my, my information just isn't as good on her as, as it is on the Daybells. So um, I'll try to be clear about what we, what we know and what's just rumor, but we know, first of all, that Lori graduated from Eisenhower High School in Rialto, California in 1991. The next year, 1992, she married her first husband, whose surname was Nelson, and they divorced maybe a year later. So she married husband number two, William Lagioya. I actually don't know how to say his last name, in 1995 in Travis County, Texas, and they divorced about three years later. So that's uh, husbands one and two. Husband number three, marriage number three is Joseph Ryan. So 
I don't know when they got married, but I know that they had a son, Colby Ryan, in 1996. And Lori says in an Instagram post that she was 22 when he was born. So if my math is correct, his father, Joseph, would have been about 37. So there's like a 14-year age difference between Lori and Joseph. And uh, and I just bring this up because there's also a 17-year age difference between Charles and Lori, her, her fourth husband. Um, so Colby is the brother of Missing Tylee. And Colby has his own YouTube channel, and he's made several very emotional appeals on behalf of Tylee and JJ. Um, in one video, it's titled Mom, he pleads with, with her. He says, you have the power to end this. I want you to end this. Um, Tylee was born in 2002, and I know that Lori has moved around a bit with addresses in Texas, Arizona, Utah, Idaho, and Hawaii, but I don't have a good timeline for all that. So marriage number four is, uh, is Charles Vallow, who we've already heard about, but I don't know when Lori and Joseph divorced, but we do know that the two were involved in a lengthy custody battle over Tylee that extended into her next marriage with Charles, marriage number four. And once again, I don't have a marriage date, but I know that in 2013, Charles and Lori adopted JJ. So JJ is the biological grandson to Charles' sister, but the family believed it was best for JJ to live with and be adopted by Charles and Lori. So, uh, so eventually... Uh, Joseph did win, you know, her third husband, Joseph, won visitation rights for Tylee. But very soon thereafter, Charles and Lori hastily moved to Hawaii to start a juice bar. And Lori allegedly threatened Joseph with allegations of sexual abuse towards, uh, towards Tylee if he did not agree to two visits per year. And this is some hearsay, so I'll just leave it at, at that. But uh, Joseph allegedly submitted to police questioning and testing to to uh, clear himself in advance of any such allegations. And there's some theories that the custody battle was really about child support, um, which is obviously affected by the number of nights each parent has with the child. And um, another theory says that Tylee wanted to stay in Hawaii because first of all, it's Hawaii and not Arizona. And uh, not that I have anything against Arizona, I love it, but come on, it's Hawaii. Um, and second, that Lori allowed Tylee to be homeschooled and sleep all day. So there, there are sources for those theories. I can't validate them, so I'll just leave it at that. Um, so I, I did want to offer a counterpoint to some of these allegations against Lori, though, because I think it's worth saying that there are others who speak really highly of her as a person and as a mother. So one of um, a mother of Tylee's friends said that her daughter loved Lori, and the mother said that, that Joseph, Lori's third husband and Tylee's father, made her uncomfortable, and that her daughter described Charles, Lori's fourth husband and JJ's adoptive, adoptive father, uh, described him as angry and mean and possibly abusive. And then uh, JJ's biological grandfather, even the brother-in-law of the late Charles, even said at a news conference this week, this was on Tuesday, I think, that uh, he said, quote, I do know that Lori always had the best, the absolute best interest and heart for JJ. She and Charles were the absolute best parents, end quote. And he also commented that Lori, uh, she was a hairdresser, always kept JJ's hair trimmed and uh, styled. So another friend of Lori described Lori as mother of the year who would go out of her way to take care of her kids and who was always kind and welcoming to their friends. That same friend, however, recalled that Lori became obsessed with the end of the world and told her that they needed to load their kids in their cars and drive them off a cliff just to end it all. Wow. In April 2018, Lori's third husband, Joseph, died of a heart attack at the age of 59. His body was cremated, leaving, uh, you know, making any future autopsy very unlikely. It seems that Charles and Lori, Lori were still in Hawaii at this time, and it's said that while they were there, they became involved with some shady business practices, and so they left with similar haste to how they'd arrived uh, returning to Arizona. 
Charles and Lori separated sometime, as I mentioned earlier, probably in late 2018 or early 2019. And, and Charles allegedly told his sister, JJ's grandmother, that he suspected Lori of having an affair with Chad. In February 2019, five months before he was killed, Charles filed court documents which said, mother, and this is all using like legal language. So mother in this case is Lori Vallow and father is Charles Vallow, her fourth husband. So mother has recently become infatuated at times obsessive about near death experiences and spiritual visions. Mother has told father that she is sealed, eternally married to the ancient book of Mormon prophet Moroni and that she has lived numerous lives on numerous planets prior to his, this current life. Mother also believes that she was married to James the Just in a past life and also lived as Mary French in the 1800s, who was Joseph Smith Jr.'s natural grandmother. Mother also informed father that she is a translated being who cannot taste death, sent by God to lead the 144,000 into the millennium. Mother believes that she is receiving spiritual revelations and visions to help her gather and prepare those chosen to live in the New Jerusalem after the Great War as prophesied in the Book of Revelations. So, so she has become really, really almost manically involved with her own belief system. And it seems Chad Daybell, it's very compatible with his belief system as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, so what, what she's talking about there, I mean, like the gathering of, of Israel, I mean, he's written books about that topic about, you know, like imagining what that's going to look like. And, um, and, and she's, and she's been described by the family members as being, you know, turning into a monster after after really becoming so involved with this stuff. Well, and, and I just want to point out again, I, w- I want to sort of avoid speculation, but even, you know, there's a whole cloud of a lot of death and, you know, violence that's sort of hanging over this whole story. So that makes me really skeptical. But let's let's take it at face value and say, you know, that Tammy did die of natural causes. Chad would have to be grieving regardless of what situation he is and to lose, to lose a spouse um, with your kids and your family and all of that, that's sort of very disruptive to your life. And so it makes sense that, you know, that he would really maybe gravitate towards mystical thinking like this. I mean, this is Mm -hmm. some magic thinking that we see there's strains of this all throughout, you know, Mormonism and, and the LDS, uh, theology and cosmology but this is this is extra 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 <laughs> yeah it, it really is it's it, it's very interesting um and just to, it it's not uncommon either i mean i like you you're, you've talked about so many different examples and and i have other examples that i can think of people that i've known that have kind of gone down these roads and um like you said you know there's there are fundamentalists in every ward um and uh, but it's but everybody everybody that I've talked to that knows the Daybells were just so surprised to hear uh, about Chad's role and 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 something that I I haven't that I don't not able to say a whole lot about because I haven't really been able to, to tie anything down. But it's I mean he's been talked about as the leader of this this movement. I mean uh, like the son of God in, in some uh, some in some references have mentioned that I don't I don't know where that comes from and I don't know how accurate that is. But it's. Uh, but it's definitely very surprising to anybody that, that knew them. What I think is so interesting is, you know, I have I interact with so many break-off groups, sects, uh, expressions, as Steve Shields, historian uh, Steve Shields would call them, of Mormonism. And there's this, like, 
really acute absence of awareness that, you know, everyone else is doing the same thing. Like they're like, like Chad Dayball thinks he's the guy and that his story's right. And he doesn't see the parallels in like, you know, the LeBarons or mm. and any other, you know, Warren Jeffs even like everyone's always like, yeah, not them. It's me. It's me. It's me. <laughs> And that just sitting back on the outside and seeing all of these, I always say profits are a dime a dozen. I just let go, huh, huh. Like <laughs> we're all just doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. So on January, so that this is the continuation of uh, the, of the court documents that were filed in February, 2019 by Charles. So he continues that says that on January 29th, 2019, during a phone conversation between the parties and after their physical separation, Mother informed father that she was a god assigned to carry out the work of the 144,000 at Christ's second coming in July 2020, and that if father got in the way of her mission, she would murder him. The next day, father was on a business trip in Houston, and during another phone conversation, she kept referring to father as Nick Schneider instead of father's name. Father asked who Nick Schneider was, and mother told him that Nick was father's real name because Nick had killed father and taken his identity. Mother proceeded to warn father that she would kill him upon his return home and had an angel there to help her dispose of the body. She also mentioned that she could not trust father and that she would not only kill him, but would destroy him financially. Since that conversation, mother's communications with father have been rare and intermittent. And so, and one thing I, I guess I wanted to add at this point was that the, you know, we were talking about all these cross sections, intersections with, with uh, the LDS, with Mormonism, with, um, the restorationist movement and the, uh, but the LDS church for their part has declined to comment on the case. They say that it does not involve the faith. Um, and, uh, so, but as far as Lori and Charles go, their divorce didn't actually finalize before he was killed. Uh, JJ's biological grandparents say that after Charles death, they had a harder time reaching JJ. The once frequent calls became less frequent and shorter until finally he couldn't be reached at all. And I think that that pretty much brings us up to date on the situation. We've got two dead ex-husbands, one dead ex-wife, one dead brother, one alleged attempted murder, two newlyweds who are in hiding and wanted by police, and two children who are still missing and believed to, be, to possibly be with cult members. Those children and Lori are the only living witnesses to the, chill, to the killing of Charles Ballow. There is a $20,000 reward for information leading to the kids. Yeah, it's fascinating. So um, what are people saying about it? What are some of the theories? What... What is the general temperature? Because when I heard about it, people were calling Chad Daybell a serial killer. Right. And that was the, I, can, I think that was like the initial read that, um, you know, his, his ex-wife was dead and he'd recently remarried. And the, but then as the story started to unfold, we, we see it kind of went a different direction, actually. So, so Chad is really involved in that, very heavily involved in that prepper movement and an author and a book publisher and everything. But but a lot of the, this history actually goes back. Uh, I mean, you know, maybe it does. Maybe it does connect more with Chad, but we don't know that for sure. Um, I think a lot of the speculation is that that there's something with uh, with Lori and her brother Alex that maybe they've coordinated to 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 conduct a lot of these killings. And I think that a lot of people are saying that that all of the deaths are suspicious. That her third husband Joseph, who died of a heart attack his remains were cremated. And so they probably can't be autopsied. Um, and, and I just want to point out that, again, to avoid being tabloid about it, but this is not unusual for people to, to feel this way. There have been several uh, 
very prominent examples of Mormons sort of starting out on this tract and then it getting murderous. I, I brought up the LeBarons. Ervil LeBaron is known for that. The Lafferty brothers. They're, uh, you know, the Knights of the Crystal Blade. It's not uncommon for people to get rev- revelations that are murderous, but every once in a while, some of those people act on it. And clearly she was having some sort of revelations that were a bit murderous. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's very clear from the the court documents. I mean, I think there's probably even a lot more to unpack with those court documents too, with these doctrines that she's referencing and talking about him having a different name and so forth. Like there's just some very strange stuff in there that is hard to understand. But yeah, I mean, I think all of the, all of these, these deaths are very suspicious. So, but but it's, and it's very, very difficult to understand because there are those that say very good things about Lori as a mother. And yet we also have that quote about her talking about driving her kids off a cliff. So something may have changed. It seems like that's, and that's the way people described it, that she changed. And the same thing with Chad, that as the deeper he went with the prepper movement with Judy Rowe and so forth, that maybe things changed there. And and so, uh, so, uh, it, and the, the account that I read of him calling his father-in-law to to tell him that his that his father-in-law's daughter had passed away in the night. I mean, he was distraught, and I I think that that was probably genuine, or I, I don't have, really have any reason to believe that it wasn't. But um, I I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that went down. And and at this point, really, the the focus uh, going back to Lori's son Colby, who has the YouTube channel, and all the family members, you know, Charles, uh, JJ's extended family, his grandparents and so forth. Everybody's really trying to recover these children. And they, they think that there, there are those that say that they're probably with the, this group, that they're probably all in hiding. For that matter, they're probably with Lori and Chad right now, or could be. So, so that's, that's kind of like really the, the biggest question right now is, is how to recover those children. And then, of course, we'll see how the rest of it unfolds. Well, I certainly appreciate you putting together this really impressive timeline. And um, like I said, I think you said it in a respectful way. I've, I've been nervous about putting something like this out as it's unfolding. But I again, even if it's all benign and these guys are just, you know, holed up in a bunker for the last day somewhere, I think it's worth paying attention to how these beliefs and this idea of personal revelation comes at odds with, you know, larger the larger institution, larger community. And then all of a sudden, when it starts to go south a little bit, how people respond. And and I think that we're watching all of that unfold right now. Definitely. Yeah. It's very interesting. Is there anything else that you want people to know or to understand? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that that pretty much, I mean, that's, that's about the, the thing with this is that there's, it's unfolding every day and um, I'm sure that I got some details wrong and, and I'm sure that there's things that have come out that I haven't heard yet. So there's, it's a, it's an active case and an active investigation. There's death investigations going on in Arizona. There's investigations going on in, in Utah now and Idaho. Uh, it's, it's a big thing. It's been making a lot of news. So I just say, stay tuned and uh, keep a lookout for those kids. So thanks Nathan for coming on and helping us out with this timeline. Yeah. Thank you.
The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.